between your ears we invite you to relax pull up a chair and get ready to take a trip to the vacation kingdom of the world so grab your magic bands and your mickey ears because it's time for another episode of the mousecapades podcast in this episode, Vicky, we are turning to the dark side. We have not done a Disney dark side episode in an extremely long time. I don't think we've ever done one with you since uh, you started filling in after Dave left, right? No, we have so not. So no Disney dark side episodes. No. We are going to learn about the secret life of Walt Disney himself. And he had an alternate life that or side of him, personality, that a lot of us just don't know. And a little thing about Walt, he knew what he wanted done with his career and with his company and the way he wanted it to go, but if you got in his way, there was hell to pay. And if the technology didn't exist or or someone had other ideas but he didn't think it was good enough, there was hell to pay. There are some things in life that really made him upset, especially the unions when they formed and got involved and actually became apparent in his company. He didn't like that. The way he treated women as inkers within the ink and paint shop. Um, so there's a lot of interesting things that we just don't or didn't know about Walt Disney that you're going to hear about in this documentary. And some of these come from friends, you know, wow. nephews that are talking about him. Don't hit the pause button. Don't stop this. You want to hear this. I cannot wait. It's our next Disney Dark Side episode, The Secret Life of Walt Disney. Enjoy. series of secret lives will the real Walt Disney please step forward Nineteen twenty-two, Kansas City, Missouri. A young man fired from his job as a cartoonist by a boss who says he can't draw gets by by making silent cartoons for local theaters. He's not a skilled artist, and these first attempts at animation are crude and one-dimensional. His drawing will never really progress, but within two decades he would have transformed animation into an American art form. His name is Walter Elias Disney. Walt has been sheltered by everybody, but like the American flag. You don't dare say anything against Walt because he's like spitting on the flag. Walt did a lot of things that were reprehensible and, and completely uh, unlike the image of Uncle Walt. Uncle Walt was a rascal. Bill Melendez works as an animator, a few miles from the site of the original Disney studio in Los Angeles. Nowadays, he produces the Snoopy cartoons for American television. But as a young man of 23, he just joined the Walt Disney studio as it was about to enter its golden age. The year was 1937. I was a newcomer and I said, good morning, Mr. Disney. Stop right away and he said, call me Walt. <laughs> Oh, boy, that is great. Oh, man, what a boss, huh? Call me Walt. In the world's film capital is the studio that stands as a monument to the great genius of Walt Disney, master of a new form of popular art that has captivated millions of moviegoers. With the antics of his entrancing animated cartoon characters, he has built an enterprise that employs 700 skilled and highly specialized artistic workers. Right around... Snow White time, Walt started a campaign all over the country of encouraging people to apply for work at the Disney studio. So he rounded up 
artists from all over the country, sent them to school, taught them how to draw, sent them to art school to learn body movement, animal movement, and uh, pushed them hard. You knew that you were surrounded by some very good artists and that uh, uh, it was a challenge to live up to the caliber of work that was being done all around you that you were exposed to every day. And you knew that uh, Walt himself demanded the very best. We worked from 7 in the morning until 10 at night. And I was glad to do it because I believed in what we were doing. And I believed in Walt. Everybody loved the studio. Everybody joyfully worked overtime, putting all the hours needed without any pay. Everybody um, liked each other and liked Walt. We called him Walt. I mean, this was uh, 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 what we thought was kind of a privilege. I mean, we were all sort of a, a big group, you know, who could be that friendly with the boss. Sometimes somebody would say, oh, Hi there, Mr. Disney, and he'd say, Uncle Walt, Uncle Walt. Snow White was a spectacular hit. During its initial run, it played to an audience of 20 million, grossing more than $8 million at a time when the average ticket price was just 25 cents. At last, Disney had the money to put his most ambitious ideas under the screen. And by the making of his next feature, no expense was spared. Pinocchio took a team of 750 artists, three years to make. Disney was determined to produce a masterpiece, and in his pursuit of perfection, he allowed no detail of their work to escape his attention. He knew when animation was great. If it wasn't, he'd send it back. He was a tough man to work for. He was a taskmaster. But he knew what he wanted to achieve and wasn't satisfied until he got it. Get along, Pinocchio had cost $2.6 million to produce, a staggering amount for the time. The spiraling costs were the result of Disney's willingness to invest heavily in key scenes. This sequence, in Stromboli's caravan, had taken a team of animators several months to make. Its use of both light and movement were groundbreaking. I think Pinocchio, in particular, amongst the Disney films, is, is really a great work. It's the best animated feature probably ever made. During the making of Pinocchio, the studio's technical department made a series of breakthroughs. The most important of these was the revolutionary multiplane camera. It was to prove crucial to the visual style of the film. In an early scene, the camera tracks across the rooftops of the village where Pinocchio lives. As the specially constructed camera moves through a series of backgrounds, a three-dimensional effect is created. Disney was enormously pleased with his new toy. He told his animators, it was always my ambition to own a swell camera, and now, God damn it, I got one. Disney had outgrown the ramshackled old Hyperion studio, and in May 1940, he moved to a futuristic new headquarters at Burbank. At the new purpose-built studio, Disney introduced a high degree of specialization amongst his workforce, transforming animation into a production line process. Here at last was the rationally planned factory Disney had dreamed of, and he was anxious to show it off to the world. 5125, check. The reluctant dragon 
was Disney's first ever live action film. It was a behind the scenes look at the new animation factory. The film painted a distinctly Disney-fied picture of the studio, in which an army of smiling, white-coated workers go happily about their tasks. Don't tell me you cook all this yourself. Uh -huh. The girls add a couple of hundred different chemicals to it, and then it all goes to the paint mill. The paint mill? But for the artists who moved to the new studio, the reality of working at Burbank didn't really live up to Disney's rose-tinted vision. The studio in Burbank had been a dream of his, and he'd build it, and he built a state-of-the-art studio. And um, I think there'd been an implicit promise that when they moved from there, from, from Hyperion Avenue or Boulevard, where they'd all been cramped in this old, uh, I think it was a, been a dairy, uh, that, that life would be better for all of them, not just for Walt. I think they got there and found that instead of it being an improvement, it was in some human ways uh, not an improvement. Uh, you know, it was much more of a factory-like atmosphere, much less casual. Marie Beardsley was one of the artists asked to make the move from the old studio. With this big new multi-million dollar studio in Burbank, everything was segregated and uh, I just things got too big and, and too impersonal. And I think that's where, where the trouble started. Disney's assembly line methods had created a hierarchy of jobs. At the top were the animators, all men, and all hand-picked by Disney. Beneath them were hundreds of inkers and painters. Their job was to color in the thousands of drawings that made up each scene. It was monotonous work, and Disney decided that it was a job for women. This is the first studio that departmentalized women to do the slave work. This is a way of keeping a disciplined lower force to do all this menial work. And they were treated terribly. No women in the animation department whatsoever. Not at all. That was the men's, that was the men's department. So the women were just in the inking and painting department. They just inked, inked the drawings and painted them. I guess it never occurred to Walt to even put a man in the inky baby. That was sort of demeaning work, you know. I tell you, they were kept in a room and they doesn't get up. Then they had tea, a tea break. That tea, then back to work. The supervisors would come around and stand behind you and watch how well you were inking and how fast you were painting. You were timed to see if you were worth uh, keeping on. Some people got fired. This I remember clearly Walt saying once that women, you know, were all right, you know, to be used in a, in a menial capacity because once they reached the age of 30, the hand got shaky, so it was time to get rid of them. Disney liked to think of himself as the head of a large and happy family. And in The Reluctant Dragon, he plays the part of a relaxed and approachable boss. Have I? <laughs> We're just going to run a new picture. You want to sit through it? Yeah, I'd love to. It'd be fine. You can roll whenever it's ready. But in reality, the atmosphere at the new studio had changed. And Disney's increasingly autocratic style of management meant that for many, the words Uncle Walt had begun to take on a new meaning. I'd be walking down the hallway, and I'd see people ahead of me sort of get out of the center of the hall and move out of his way. And as he came by, it was a feeling that they flattened against the wall almost to avoid being in his way. People around the studio called him Uncle Walt, but there was a, there was a satirical spin on that because, you know, there are uncles who are a real pain. Uh, you know, they're into your life all the time and uh, domineering and controlling, and, and that was Uncle Walt to most people at the studio. In Disney's extended family, the studio 
he had this ironclad ban on any kind of socializing and and, and anything that smacked of uh, sexuality. That was completely verboten. An inner office memo was sent around to all the girls in ink and paint, and it said, the men who are married at Disney's are happily married, and we want all of the girls to understand that. He was quite a Puritan. He didn't want any hanky-panky. For a Hollywood mogul, Disney was unusually straight-laced. He had met his wife, Lillian, in 1924, when she arrived from Idaho to work at his fledgling studio. They stayed together for more than 40 years. No one who worked with Disney remembers him showing any interest in other women. In fact, he told one of his animators that he loved Mickey Mouse more than any girl he'd ever known. It was Disney's birthday. Um, a couple of animators made a film of Mickey and Minnie fornicating and ran it, uh, and everybody got a really good laugh out of it, and it was a very harmless uh, bit of footage, at the end of which Disney stood up and said, that, that was great, that was fabulous animation. Who did that? And the animators who did raised their hands, and he fired them on the spot. And nobody crossed him. If they did cross him, they were simply fired. Joan Scott was hired by Disney as a screenwriter. She was assigned to a veteran studio producer who'd been with Disney for more than 23 years. But on a trip to Europe, the producer made the mistake of disagreeing with Disney over a filming location. They were in the hotel lobby discussing these two places, and Jerry was speaking up for the choice he'd made, and Disney said, but so-and-so said, this is better because... And Jerry said, but no, Walt, I think, and Walt said, take the next plane home. Fired him in the, in the hotel lobby. Hello, I'm Walt Disney. When I was a boy in Missouri, I practically lived outdoors. I find I don't make it quite as often now, but like millions of others, I like to enjoy it when I can. Disney was raised in America's heartland, and throughout his life, he felt strong attachment to the folksy values of his Midwestern childhood. He liked to say that his hometown had made him what he was. But America's Midwest was never the most cosmopolitan place, and along with his apple pie values came a certain small-town prejudice. He was as bigoted a person as I've ever encountered, especially in a position of power. He made no bones but not liking this or that type of people. He especially hated, uh, oh God, he, he, he didn't like uh, uh, Jews, especially New York ones. Joan Scott had been aware of Disney's anti-Semitic reputation when she arrived at the studio. Being part Jewish, it made her feel uncomfortable. We were on our way to lunch at the commissary and Disney's right-hand man came rushing out the door and said, wait a minute, and he said, uh, Joan, um, I have a question from Walt. And he just wants to know what your background is. And I knew, I don't know if it's instinctively just common sense, that he didn't want to know if I was English or French. So I said, I'm really American hash. I'm some English, some Czech, some German and uh, I'm an eighth Jewish. And you could see this man's face just change expression. <laughs> Somebody hired, of course, the front office or, uh, you know, whoever was hiring, I forget, uh, hired this very dark, I mean, he was blue, black Hindu, very dark. And um, <laughs> so Walt was, you know, walking along the hallway up to his room and bah, must have made a take like you can't believe him when he saw this guy god he did a take and went up to his office i guess and he said what's that you know what's that negro doing around here oh no 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 well he's not a negro he's a hindu he said well he's pretty dark get rid of him Disney had conceived Fantasia as the studio's coming of age, its great contribution to high art. But its banal, often tacky imagery came as a disappointment to many. 
in this scene, which accompanies Beethoven's Sixth Symphony, the heads of disnified American teenagers are grafted onto the bodies of centaurs. I remember when I was, when we were working on Fantasia, some of the guys saying, oh God, someday we'll be proud to say that we worked on Fantasia. It's just the opposite, see? Uh, I see it now and I wonder what the hell would they, could we do that? We seem to have gone crazy. How could we, you know, translate uh, Beethoven's Sixth Symphony in, in, into that Bacchanal? I don't know. On seeing this scene, Disney was impressed. He said, gee, this'll make Beethoven. Studio publicity from the 40s showed Disney, pencil in hand, at work as an animator. In fact, he played no part in drawing any of the classic Disney films. Walt was not a good draftsman and uh, did it only for the camera. He was not an artist. He was always being asked when he was out in the hinterlands giving talks and meeting people, draw Mickey, and he couldn't draw it. So I remember when they they got old uh, Freddie Moore, who was the best, considered the best Mickey man, Mickey Mouse man, to teach Walt how to draw a three-quarter shot of Mickey Mouse, which Walt used from then on, a three-quarter shot of the, of the face so that he could sign that. You know, that's his drawing. Despite his limitations as an artist, Disney took the lion's share of on-screen credits. In film after film, the name Walt Disney dominated the screen, dwarfing the contribution of the studio's artists. Some of the stuff they did in those features had not been done before on a screen. And they were doing it. I mean, Walt might be approving it. He might even be suggesting it sometimes. But they were the ones who were executing it, finding the, the means of accomplishing it. And, you know, to be kind of relegated to a minuscule credit at the end of the movie or maybe at the beginning, but still tiny. Uh, that was that was hurtful. Those are, those are really quite creative people. You know, he could have shared went on his nature too, but you know, in an ideal world, he could have. <laughs> I was in New York, and they had a, a big um, exhibit at the Museum of Modern Art about the art of Walt Disney. So of course, I went to see it. See, I was curious. I go to see the art of Walt Disney. They all this stuff around signed. Everything was signed. Walt Walt Disney. He hadn't made any one of those goddamn drawings. The art of Walt Disney is the art of a company, fine, but not, but not Walt signing his, his name to other people's drawings. That's not fine at all. During his career, Walt Disney was awarded more Oscars than any other artist in the history of Hollywood. In all, he won no less than 26 Academy Awards. But as the honors piled up, resentment amongst his artists grew. Many felt that Disney was stealing the credit for work that they were doing. He didn't like sharing in the honors, you know, and he always had his name. His name went up, but he had he had some mighty fine talent, and he knew how to rely on the talent to get things done, and, and they did it, but they didn't get much credit for it. He took care to see that people did not get credit. Uh, Jack Kenny, he did a, a film. Walt had nothing to do with the film at all, but Walt marched up there to get the Oscar. And this was repeated over and over. I remember one time going up to Walt, you know, with a committee and suggesting that maybe, you know, we should have some kind of a, just, just like the, the Oscars, some kind of a celebration where we gave, you know, recognize, say, the, the best animation, the best layout, background, the best, you know, different things of, of, of the, uh, of animation, you know, and, and hand out, uh, you know, not Oscar, but, you know, something like that. And his retort was, if there's any 
um, what do you call it? Any, any uh, prices are going to be handed out, I'll receive them. He said, just like that. That ended our meeting. Disney's vision of his studio as a happy family had turned sour. His artists had come to see him less as a father figure and more as a despot. They were about to turn against him, and the studio would never be the same again. Early in 1941, the workers voted to establish a trade union. All that the workers wanted was the right to unionize, and Disney refused to allow them to do that. Disney took a vow, that he, a public vow, that he would never allow the, the, uh, a union on his lot. He didn't want any outside interference, and he considered you know, having a, a union leader come in and tell him what he could do, how he had to treat his workers. Uh, he didn't, he thought that was an intrusion, and he felt that he treated them well, and that was good enough. Faced with Disney's refusal to recognize a union, the workers threatened to walk out, but Disney wouldn't back down. We were sure Walt would meet with us when we first presented him with our grievances. Oh, Walt will take care of us. He would never let this happen. We all told each other, this just won't happen. Walt wouldn't permit it. Bam! You know, he behaved, in our estimation, like a 19th century robber baron. He thought that he had been a, a, a wonderful daddy to them all. And they, on the other hand, felt that their daddy had betrayed them. So it was a, it was a fine mess, is what it was. In an attempt to intimidate his workers, Disney threatened to end production of animated films and switch to live action. To prove he was serious, he auditioned some hopeful actresses. He took all the clerical workers, who were mostly women, the low-level jobs, and paraded them out in bathing suits. And he's standing there, kind of leering at these babes, these Hollywood babes. And the point very clearly was, I can make movies with beautiful women. I don't need you animators. And if I let you go, uh, no one else is going to hire you. You'll be tainted. The workers ignored Disney's stunt. A few days later, they walked out. That first day, when the pickets went up, uh, they, you know, again, these are animators, and so they weren't just picketing, they were picketing with a flourish. It was, after all, Hollywood. The picket lines, of course, were famous. We had the funniest picket signs ever seen. We had a fun strike going. Kind of a fun thing, you know? Cartoon thing. <laughs> Drawing on French revolutionary tactics, the strikers decided to decapitate Disney's strike negotiator. In spite of the good-humoured picket lines, the decision to come out had created tensions. Some animators had stayed loyal to Disney and were continuing to work. We had to go through the picket line. We had fellows in our units who were out on strike, fellows in our units who were, would not go out on strike. Feelings ran awfully high, awfully high between yeah. uh, people outside and the people inside. I couldn't have gone through the picket line. I really couldn't. That was a terrible thing, and there were a lot of uh, animosities and hatreds kind of built up because of that, which was too bad, because we were all friends. Just before the strike, Work had begun on a story about a baby circus elephant called Dumbo. Despite the fact that some of his best artists were now manning the picket lines, Disney was determined that work on the picture should continue. Produced mostly by strike breakers, Dumbo made a thinly veiled reference to the studio's own crisis. In one scene, some greedy circus clowns sow the seeds of industrial unrest. This idea is sensational! Let's go tell the boss! Yeah, 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 let's yeah. Yeah. Hey, hey, let's hit him for a race! Yeah, sure, this is white real dough! Oh, we're gonna hit the big boss for a race! Yes, we're gonna hit the big boss for a race! 
Back on the picket line, Disney's own workers were not afraid to show the big boss how they felt. Disney had to kind of run the gauntlet to get to his own studio. Must have been awful for him. We would shout and yell. It was kind of frightening. Somebody yelled something out that he uh, didn't like, and he got out of his car. And he was ready to run and and kind of go at it with this fellow physically, but he was restrained. Uh, by this time, his fuse was so low that uh, that the spark was ready to hit the TNT. He just went ballistic about that strike, I'll tell you. Came out every day almost and stood there about oh 60 feet back of the gates to watch the picket line he had someone come out and photograph the picket line photograph everybody that was in the picket line his office was lined with the photos of all the people on the picket lines and he would go through and pick out and say, this bastard, you know, I did this for him, and I built this one over here, and I'm never going to do this for the other. He had taken it to all kind of wild proportion. He had personalized it. It was no longer a question of unions. It was no longer a question of, of uh, fair pay and low work. It was a question of betrayal. It was, this is the thanks I get for all I've done for you. The strike dragged on. The more Disney thought about it, the harder he found it to accept that the strikers had willingly defied him. He became convinced that the real truth was that communists were behind the strike. He saw the strike as a microcosm of the growing communist threat in, in uh, Hollywood and America. It was almost a heroic posture that I think he saw himself uh, in the Alamo of Hollywood, you know, fighting off these, uh, these insurgents. At that time, uh, everybody was seeing a red under every bush in, in Hollywood, and uh, and he just he just assumed that we were anybody who was out on strike was just communist. Co communist. That was all there was to it. Had nothing to do with being or not being a communist. Had to do with a labor problem in the studio and solving it. What did the goddamn communists have to do with that? Everyone I knew there, all my friends, we were out on strike, and I, we'd known each other for a long time, and uh, there wasn't a single communist amongst the lot. The strike entered its second month. It had become the longest-running labor dispute in Hollywood history. By now, Disney was desperate to end it. He turned to organized crime for help. Willie Byoff was a gangster from Chicago. He'd been taking payoffs from studio bosses in return for neutralizing Hollywood's trade unions. Byoff was an organized crime figure. He was part of the Capone mob, and uh, he was very much uh, a known crime figure in this town. But all the studios accepted him and welcomed him in because uh, he was helping them keep out a larger problem, which was unions. Disney decided that Byoff was his best hope of breaking the strike. He drew up an offer to put to the strike leaders and asked Byoff to deliver it. Byoff took them to his home at night in a big limo with gangsters with machine guns and everything. The whole schmear of scaring the hell out of these kids and threatened them that if they didn't take this, it would be or else kind of a situation. These guys were capable of murder and they scared the hell out of everybody. The kids came back trembling white as a sheet to report what had happened. And that's when, at that very emotional evening, these our strikers had been on a strike for over eight weeks, turned it down as hungry as they were. And it was a very noble thing for them to do. We turned it down because of this guy being a dirty guy, you know, a gangster. So, uh, and the fact that Disney would deal with it by then didn't surprise us. For Disney to deal with this bylaw, who was a, a pimp and a proven extortionist, was the lowest thing that I think any, any studio could do. The rejection of the buy-off deal 
had pushed Disney to the verge of a nervous breakdown. He developed a series of twitches and phobias and was washing his hands as much as 30 times an hour. August 1941. As the strike enters its seventh week, Disney and a small group of loyalists leave Los Angeles on a flight bound for Rio. Disney's brother Roy had persuaded him to travel to Latin America on a government-sponsored goodwill trip. Roy knew that Disney's mental state had deteriorated so far that he'd become a liability. The idea was to get rid of Walt Disney, to get him out of the picture so they could settle this thing. And in his absence, Roy, his brother, who was far more practical and at this point in touch with reality, settled the strike in 24 hours. He negotiated a settlement with the union, and that was it. The strike was over, and Disney had lost. The settlement conceded virtually all the strikers' demands, including better pay and conditions, and the recognition of an independent trade union. When news of the settlement reached Walt Disney in South America, he became so furious that he wrecked his makeshift office. When Walt came back and, and realized that he had to accept the union, it was probably the darkest day of his life. But there was some good news. While Disney had been away, the strike breakers had finished Dumbo. It had been made at remarkable speed. It went into production just before the strike began in May 41, and was already finished by the time the strike ended in September. Freed from the demands of Disney's perfectionism and attention to detail, the animators adopted a surprisingly uncomplicated style. The lavish backgrounds and intricate artwork of Pinocchio were replaced by a simpler, more cartoon-like look. Six weeks after Dumbo's release, the United States and Disney went to war. In Der Führer's face, Donald Duck was enlisted to work for the US propaganda machine. He showed Americans what life would be like under Hitler. The film was a radical departure for Disney. Aware of the enormous appeal of his best-known characters, he decided to use one of them as a vehicle for political satire. It was translated into several languages, and copies were dropped behind enemy lines. It won Disney an Oscar in 1943. Let's go with uh, Navy Project 648, sequence one. Let her roll. Der Führer's face was one of over a hundred military training and propaganda films produced by the Disney studio during the war years. As it was being released, a small group of artists were putting the finishing touches to the studio's fifth animated feature. Begun around the same time as Pinocchio, Bambi had been five years in the making. Disney was determined to achieve a new level of realism in the film's portrayal of nature. He established a zoo at the studio so his artists could study animal movement and sent wildlife photographers into the countryside to capture, among other things, the properties of rain. Once again, Disney's meticulous attention to detail paid off. When the film was released in 1942, 
It was hailed as a masterpiece. Bambi was the last of the great Disney films. After the bitterness of the strike, Disney began to lose his passion for animation. A new obsession was taking its place. In America, when things go wrong, we look for some kind of alien evil to blame it on, and communism was certainly fulfilled that function for people like Disney, for lots of people in America. One of those who shared Disney's fear of communism was FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover. Communism in reality is not a political party. It is a way of life, an evil and malignant way of life. It reveals a condition akin to disease that spreads like an epidemic. And like an epidemic, a quarantine is necessary to keep it from infecting this nation. Hoover and Disney shared similar outlooks. You know, they were similarly dart-driven men. They'd done the same thing in almost the same time frame. They had built little organizations into big organizations. The FBI was a Disney-like organization. All those clean-cut wasp young men in their ties and their black suits and so forth, going around very politely inquiring into your political beliefs. There would have been a natural affinity there. FBI headquarters. One moment, please. I'll give you Mr. Documents released under the Freedom of Information Act revealed that the relationship between Hoover and Disney went beyond a natural affinity. In 1954, the head of the FBI's Los Angeles office wrote to Hoover, recommending that Disney be given special status within the Bureau's intelligence gathering network. Mr. Disney can be a valuable assistance to this office. It is my recommendation that he be approved as an SAC, Special Agent in Charge, contact. At the head of each of the FBI's 51 field offices is a Special Agent in Charge. He was classified as an SAC contact, meaning a contact who is contacted solely by the Special Agent in Charge of the field office, in this case, Los Angeles. William Turner worked for the FBI for more than 10 years. We asked him to review Disney's FBI file. Disney was feeding a lot of information about inside Hollywood to the FBI. He was informing uh, to the FBI what he knew about activities of a subversive or conceived subversive nature in the, in the industry. Disney's FBI file runs to around 600 pages and points to a 20-year relationship with the Bureau. But the exact nature of the information Disney supplied to the FBI might never be known. Around 80% of the documents are either partly or wholly blacked out. The FBI says this is to protect confidential sources. We have no way of telling if those are valid withholdings or not. We simply have to go on their word. Walt Disney is dead for a quarter of a century. What possible information can remain in that file in 1994 that, it, that needs to be blacked out? Well, why do you think they've blacked it out? because they want to protect Walt Disney's reputation. April 1944, the Biltmore Hotel, Los Angeles. Members of the Motion Picture Alliance for the Preservation of American Ideals meet secretly with investigators from Washington's Un-American Activities Committee. The Alliance had been formed a few months earlier by Walt Disney and a group of Hollywood ultra-conservatives dedicated to stemming the communist tide. A lot of famous names were involved in it. A lot of them uh, uh, really believed that uh, communism was taking a hold in our schools and, and in our movies. 
Disney and his MPA colleagues had drawn up a list of suspected communists working in the film industry. And at the Biltmore meeting, they handed it over to the investigators. Those named were to become the first victims of the McCarthyite witch hunts. Are you a member of the Communist Party? Or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? It's unfortunate and tragic that I have to teach this committee the That's basic principles of Americanism. Are you or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? I believe I have the right to be confronted with any evidence. Are you now or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? It is perfectly clear to me, gentlemen, that if you continue in this now, particular fashion, you, you have only one idea, and that is to cause the strife in the industry, your excuse. The House Un-American Activities Committee ushered in one of the most shameful periods in American history. Hollywood liberals and left-wingers were called before the committee and subjected to ruthless interrogation. For Americanism for many years, and I stand away from the stand. For the Bill of Rights, which I'll stand away from the stand. They were out to blacklist and to get anybody connected with the film that they suspected of uh, being left-wing or communist out of the industry and destroy their uh, careers. The committee's show trial attack on Hollywood left-wingers was assisted by a series of big-name witnesses, anxious to confirm the extent of the communist threat in Hollywood. Several of the so-called friendly witnesses came from the ranks of Disney's Motion Picture Alliance. And on October the 24th, 1947, after a session with Ronald Reagan, Disney himself took the stand. I, I don't believe it's a political party. I believe it's an un-American thing. And I feel that, uh, that they really ought to be smoked out and shown up for what they are so that all the good free causes in this country, all the liberalisms that really are American can go out without this taint of communism. We're talking in Disney's case. A certain paranoia. Communists in s the minds of certain kinds of sort of primitive anti-communists are sort of like, you know, these extraterrestrials we hear about now. They, they're coming out of nowhere and landing in our backyards and tearing up our turnip patches and doing bad things to us, and we can't explain it. And at the present time, you own and operate the Walt Disney Studio at... In his testimony, Disney returned to his now familiar theme of how the communists were taking control of the American labor movement. The thing that, that I resent the most is that they are able to get into these unions and take them over. They get themselves closely tied up in the labor thing so that if you try to get rid of them, they'd make a labor case out of it. He should have stayed out of that. There's no reason for him to go out there and, and give expert testimony against the communists. What the hell did he know about the communists? He didn't know a thing. But he was thinking about us. He was thinking about our little union, crummy little union for crummy sakes. The bitterness felt by Disney over the strike at his studio six years before was as strong as ever. And despite no hard evidence, he named several of the strike leaders as communists, including union organizer Herb Sorrell. I believe at that time that Mr. Sorrell was a communist because of all the things that I had heard and, uh, uh, and had seen uh, his name appearing on many of the commie front things. You, can you name any other individuals that were active at the time? At this point, the newsreel pictures were cut. But the congressional record shows that Disney went on to name strike activist David Hilberman as a communist. I got a call from my uh, brother in Los Angeles. He just said, Walt Disney named you. And I said, the son of a bitch. Disney claimed he had firm evidence that his former employee was a communist. One, Hilberman had no religion. And two, he had studied in Russia. I found a job at a musical comedy theater, if you please. That was on my resume. I turned it in. Disney, of course, as soon as this all happened, probably looked it up, and there it was. Since I've been in Russia, I must have been a communist. It was the beginning of a nightmare for David Hilberman. Disney's decision to name him led to further condemnations of subsequent show trials. 
Bilberman was blacklisted and forced into exile in England. I guess that having been involved in that strike and uh, been a leader of it, it was fair game. I stuck my neck out. So big surprise, the axe fell. I mean, Walt Disney on the one hand, a great producer, inspirer, so on, and on the other, a son of a bitch. I don't know who appointed Walt Disney, the judge, jury, and, and high lord master of democracy in America. I don't see where he was anointed with, with the ability to condemn people's lives without proof or, or, um, or authority. He didn't have to, but he did. Nice guy. Anyway, dear Uncle Walt, rest in peace. <laughs> For Disney, the ghosts of the strike had been laid to rest. At last, he had taken his revenge. The years to come were to be good to Disney, as he ventured into live action, television, and ultimately the theme parks. He was to achieve unimagined commercial success. As his empire expanded, the personal image was polished. So that when he died in 1966, America mourned the loss of its favorite uncle. But for those that knew Disney, there remained more complex memories. Who wouldn't love you, honey, and who wouldn't buy the west side of heaven if you just wink your eye? You're the answer to my ever prayer, honey child. Who wouldn't love you, and who wouldn't care? Who wouldn't love you, who wouldn't care? You're so enchanting, people must stare. You're the dream that dreamers want to dream about. You're the breath of spring that lovers get about, are mad about. Who wouldn't love you, tell me, who wouldn't buy? The west side of heaven if you wink your eye. You're the answer to my every prayer.